so I think uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, push off then. Um, so thank all of you for joining the Deleuze and Guatry Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we have finally made our way to capitalism. Uh, we were started there, we got there a little bit, and we're finally finishing off uh, a little bit more. So uh, we'll go ahead and start by uh, first thing. Is there anything, uh, any notes uh, that anyone wants to bring up before we dive in? Because I'm really itching to sort of dive directly into this. Uh, for the server overall, we are still looking for more volunteers, people who want to take on a handful of talks, people who want to join more talks, people who want to moderate, people who want to help us letting people in, anything like that, we would be more than happy to have you join us. Uh, feel free to toss yourself in the volunteer section uh, anytime you like. Uh, Kent, how are uh, the other talks going? Well, we're, we're reading uh, Zizek, Sex and the Failed Absolute. We're on the, I think, the third section. Um, of the first chapter and uh we'll be reading that on uh on wednesday and then uh on friday we're reading uh the basic writings of heidegger and we're on modern science metaphysics and mathematics from what is the thing nice uh, the Zizek talks uh, have been great. I've mostly been listening and lurking in the background because it's uh, it's such a denser conversation and a, a lot of information that I'm uh, it's 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 a lot for me to take in. But I've been really enjoying them, so uh, glad those are going and continuing to go well. Um, any other things? Any other notes that anyone wants to bring up before we dive forward? Hmm. All right, well then, I'm going to go ahead and uh, dive into our continued reading. We're going to read uh, Chapter 3, Section 10, Capitalist Representation. Writing has never been capitalism's thing. Capitalism is profoundly illiterate. The death of writing is like the death of God or the death of the Father. The thing was settled a long time ago, although the news of the event is slow to reach us, and there survives in the, us the memory of extinct signs with which we still write. The reason for this is simple. Writing implies a use of language in general, according to which graphism becomes aligned on the voice, but also overcodes it and induces a fictitious voice from on high that functions as a signifier. The arbitrary nature of the thing designated, the subordination of the signified, the transcendence of the despotic signifier, and finally, its consecutive decomposition into minimal elements within a field of eminence uncovered by the withdrawal of the despot. All this is evidence that writing belongs to the imperial despotic representation. Once this is said, what exactly is meant when someone announces the collapse of the Gutenberg galaxy? Of course, capitalism has made and continues to make use of writing. Not only is writing adapted to money as the general equivalent, but the specific functions of money in capitalism went by way of writing and printing, and in some measure continue to do so. The fact nonetheless remains that writing typically plays the role of an archaism in capitalism, the Gutenberg press being the element that confers on the archaism a current function. But the capitalist use of language is different in nature. It is realized or becomes concrete within the field of eminence peculiar to capitalism itself, with the appearance of the technical means of expression that correspond to the generalized decoding of flows, instead of still referring in a direct or indirect form to 
due to spotic overcoating. Uh, we are going to get through three paragraphs today, I have a feeling. Um, let's start. I think uh, uh, Alyosha uh, has a great place to start, which is the concept of graphism and the voice and how that happened and made that switch inside of, uh, I believe, the primitive socius. Uh, if we want to go back a bit, did anyone want to elucidate on that? Okay, I can try. So um, I'm actually not sure where this all happened, but I think we talked about first when we talked about the um, the border between uh, the primitive socius and the despotic socius. Um, and the point there was that in the primitive system, uh, we have um, the graphic system, writing graphism, completely um, detached from the voice. Like we have um, spoken language and we have written language, but they do not correspond to each other. And in the process, or in, in the despotic system, we then have the um, that... Uh, that um, the graphism, the written language, gets totally subjected under the voice, under the um, spoken language. Um, and what happens there then is, and that's why the voice becomes a signifier for the for the uh, for the graphism, is that we start to look for what did the author or or. Uh, what did the author of this text that is written really mean? Like we have this third instance. We do not uh, just have us and the text, but we have um, the voice that's um, that's behind the graphic, uh, behind the graphism, behind the written word um, in that as well. Like and the uh, the the primary model for this is right. basically so, um, how. So I I, I want to before we jump on I, because I I think I understood it differently and I want to ask about that because how I, and I'm going to try to put it in really simple terms because I don't fully understand semiotics to the level I know a lot of people do, but how I read that section is the idea that. Um, uh, in the in the primitive times, let's go back into the world. Um, when I was talking or I said something to Alyosha, it was Brooks saying that thing to Alyosha. He would say something back to me. Uh, generally speaking, graphism was uh, not necessarily writing as we know it today, but it was etch marks, uh, paintings, things like that, that were that didn't directly replace the voice, but instead were yeah, artistic versions or symbols of things, uh, not in the same way that a, a word replaces what I say. The moment that I wrote down, uh, Brooks said this thing and I write it out as a sentence, I then hand that to Alyosha. It's no longer my voice saying a thing. Instead, it's, uh, to to use a sentence, it, it's instead mentally, when I look at that, I part of me goes, well, it is written. Uh, that, that kind of idea that there's this voice on high that has imbued this as having more voice than just Brooks's voice. And that's the the overcoding that they're talking about when we switch from the primitive to the despotic. That that voice becomes effectively the despot, the ruler, God's uh, voice, and that overcoding of writing 
where it's it takes on a lot more than it really has effectively um is what they're referring to when they talk about the graphism and voice and voice being t- uh graphism r- aligned with voice but also overcodes it and introduces a fictitious voice on high that functions as a signifier that 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 signifier of the it is written or someone wrote this or whatever is not so much the voice of that person but instead i'm reading it as a book uh, if i'm reading dune for example i'm not reading it going ah oh, this is what herbert's trying to say at no point instead it's a narrative god voice that's telling me what's happening okay can you can you explain what you think the difference is to what i said um Well, and I, it may be that I just got stuck up on uh, the phrasing because it it sounded like you were almost saying the reverse of that. Maybe you were saying the same thing. Were you saying the same thing? I'm not sure. Like, I think you have. I I'm not I'm I'm not sure. Can you try to explain what you think the difference is? Um. So, the the specific thing that happens is that the voice, when we refer to voice, there's two voices that we're talking about. Uh, one is, let's say, Brooks's voice, and the other is uh, the signifier's voice. Master signifier, I think, in this case, would not be a terrible term to use. Um, the despotic signifier, this this voice on high, that when something is written, it takes on that secondary signifier's. A voice and that uh, no longer is it just Brooks or one person talking or me saying what I mean, but having been written, that naturally overcodes even the words that are used. Just by being written, there's that secondary signifier that's part of it. Yeah, I would have said that as well, but I think you would, uh, the distinction between what we, what I said and what you said was that you differentiate, like, um, I would say that uh, the uh, the um, that the shift that happens is that before the uh, graphism is uh, is um, subjugated under the um, the voice, um, we do not have something outside of the graphism that determine that's that matters actually and that uh, that's why i basically would say that the voice on high and the author like god and author are the same figure like i would not make the distinction you make there between god and um an author and say that the identification of the text with an author that the text actually um like the graphic, uh, the graphism, the right of written text um, represents an intent by an author that that's already the shift and um, that the text or the graphism doesn't stand for its, for, um, for itself, but only the voice can stand for itself. So I think where I'm getting hung up then in the differences, I don't see the voice, uh, I, I don't see the voice being the thing that subjugates writing. I see writing as the thing that subjugates the voice in my understanding of it. And maybe I'm just reading it backwards. Maybe someone else has some insight into it. Yes, please. Anyone jump in here. Well, uh, one thing that might be said is that... Um, Uh, there's a there's a book called First Signs where uh, an anthropologist went back to the cave 
paintings that are like 50,000 years old in France and and um and and she um rephotographed all of the uh all of the symbols that were not pictures so in those cave paintings there were pictures of animals or a few pictures of humans but uh and then there were these abstract uh and and the and once she had gotten through uh doing all of the caves uh in France she published her list and there there, there were about 32 of these abstract symbols that she cataloged and so um and so there there is this distinction in the in the um in the actual uh cave you know uh, writings that between the 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 pictograms you know the like the pictures and then there's these abstract symbols that are that are kind of uh different from the pictogram and i think the graphism is all about these uh these pictograms um and so that that's what we're talking about with the graphism and it's so to go back page 203 of anti-oedipus has where a lot of this is first introduced and uh i i think we're both right and wrong lou i think we may be talking about slightly so um two different orders of inscription a graphism that leaves the voice dominant by being independent of the voice while connecting with it and a graphism that dominates or supplants the voice by depending on it in various ways and subordinating itself to the voice. The primitive territorial sign is self-validating. It is a position of desire in a state of multiple connections. It is not a sign of a sign nor a desire of a desire. It knows nothing of linear subordination and its reciprocity. Neither pictogram nor ideogram. It is rhythm and not form, zigzag and not line, artifact, not idea, production, not expression. Uh, and they go into this. So I, I, it's it's a it's interesting the conjunction with the voice here for graphism, uh, and they go through. It's the next two or three through two or five is basically where all of this takes place. If you want to read uh, along or go through it. And then the the other thing we should remember is uh, you know Derrida has this idea of logocentrism, that in the Western tradition the voice dominates the writing. Yes, and they um, absolutely they explicitly reference Derrida on. Yes, they do. They are on this on somewhere on page two hundred three or two. I don't know. Uh, yeah, two or two, but it's basically two or three. It's the bottom of two or two. Uh, Derrida is correct in saying that every language presupposes a writing system from which it originates. If by that he means the existence and the connection of some sort of graphism, writing in the largest sense of the term. He's also right in saying that within writing in the narrow sense, hardly any breaks can be established between pictographic, ideogramic, and phonetic procedures. There is always an already an alignment on the voice at the same time as a substitution for the voice. So it's a it's a supplantation and a subordination at the same time uh, to the voice for different reasons. Hmm. This will be worthwhile for us to dive into in a review. I mean, we're already one. We're not even a paragraph in yet. I was just saying in the chat, I don't know if you caught, guys saw that there, that 
I just thought the one interesting thing that is in that paragraph is the way that they say it dominates or supplants the voice by subordinating itself to the voice. So it's just another sort of DNG type move. So I, I think actually, Lou, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to say, Lou, I think you were right. And I was misunderstanding because I was, I was misreading this, that it is actually that like what Alyosha said, what's happening is it, it, it does dominate. And so it, it, it is what I was thinking, but it doesn't dominate through straight domination. What it does is it supplant, it, it goes in, via subordination, uh, the the graphism comes in, basically allows the voice to be superior or whatever, um, but ultimately is actually supplanting it in terms of how the sign operates. Yeah. Yeah. Try it, go on. Uh, That's a really complicated thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um... It, it, I don't know if it's fitting, but I uh, think the last sentence is uh, pretty interesting because there they are talking about uh, that uh, capitalism is using language in a different manner, that there isn't a despotic overcoding anymore, uh, but that capitalism gets in some sense uh, self-referential and just uh, talks about itself and its own language as I understand it. It's uh, not an instrument for an um, despotic regime, but it uh, is this regime maybe itself. No, it, I, I, I think so. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt whoever was just talking. <laughs> no, no, I just finished. Okay, so I think the way I... Um... <laughs> Oh, oh, I, I need a moment. Sorry. No, no. This is. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna begin reading because I think uh, the the next few paragraphs expand on this, but it's it's they expand very specifically on actually what we're having a discussion around, and it's worth diving into because the the goal here is, uh, and we can do a full review of how semiotics have changed through the primitive, the despotic, and then the capital, which I think would be actually a really interesting talk. But specifically what this chapter is doing is they start off with a hell of a thing. And it's this is a long, 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 long yeah, section. They get but, way deeper into media studies and semiotics, especially. Yeah, they get uh, super deep into it. Especially with uh, Hermslev's. Uh, he's pretty, uh, a pretty complex semiotician, so to say. Okay, I just want to read one thing from page 206 that I found, which basically is the foundation of my understanding and how I presented it earlier. It is perhaps at this juncture that the question, what does it mean, begins to be heard, and that problems of exegesis prevail over problems of use and efficacy. The emperor, the god, what did he mean? In place of segments of the chain that are always detachable, a detached partial object on which the whole chain depends, in place of a polyvocal graphism flush with the real, a biunivocalization forming the transcendent dimension that gives rise to a linearity, in place of non-signifying signs then compose the network of a territorial chain, a despotic signifier from which all the signs uniformly flow in a territorial in, in a deterritorialized de flow of writing. I, I like, okay. 
uh, this let's make sure we talk about this in our review because again um this is going to be so complex i'm going to dive into the next paragraph however um because i think they're going to be start getting into the uh to that point what does it mean uh the, the secondary implications and all kinds of fun stuff because that's a lot of what they're talking about. This seems to us to be the significance of McLuhan's analyses. To have shown what a language of decoded flows is, as opposed to a signifier that strangles and overcodes the flows. In the first place, for non-signifying language, anything will do, whether it be phonic, graphic, gestural, etc. No flow is privileged in this language, which remains indifferent to its substance or its support, inasmuch as the latter is an amorphous continuum. The electric flow can be considered as the realization of such a flow that is indeterminate as such, but a substance is said to be formed when a flow enters into a relationship with another flow, such that the first defines a content and the second an expression. The deterritorialized flows of content and, or, and expression are in a state of conjunction or reciprocal precondition that constitutes figures as the ultimate units of both content and expression. These figures do not derive from a signifier, nor are they even signs as minimal elements of the signifier. They are non-signs, or rather, non-signifying signs. Point signs having several dimensions, flows, breaks, or skizzes that form images through their coming together in a whole, but that do not maintain any identity when they pass from one whole to another. Hence the figures, that is, the skizzes or breaks flows that are in no way figurative. They become figurative only in a particular constellation that dissolves in order to be replaced by another one. Three million points per second transmitted by television, only a few of which are retained. Electric language does not go by way of the voice of writing. Data processing does without them both, as does that discipline appropriately named fluidics, which operates by means of streams of gas. The computer is a machine for instantaneous and generalized decoding. Michael Saris defines in this sense the correlation of the break and the flow in the signs of the new technical language machines, which production is narrowly determined by information. Take, for example, a cloverleaf highway interchange. It is a quasi-point that analyses, through multiple overlappings, along a dimension that is normal to the network space, the lines of flow for which it serves as a receiver. On it, one can go from any afferent direction to any efferent direction, and in whatever order without ever encountering any of the other directions. If I like... I will never come back to the same point, although it will be the same, a topological knot where everything is connected without confusion, where everything flows together and is distributed. Thus a knot may be seen as a point having several dimensions, which far from canceling the flows, contains them and sets them in motion. This cordoning off of production through information shows once again that the productive essence of capitalism functions or speaks only in the language of signs imposed on it by merchant capital or the axiomatic of the market. Okay, so let's take what we were just discussing, which is the concept originally of uh the, the last sentence here, uh, as uh, Trad mentioned, but the capitalist use a different use of language is different in nature. It is realized or becomes concrete within the field of eminence peculiar to capitalism itself. 
that concept essentially is carried through this paragraph all the way again through the end uh, that capitalism functions or speaks only in the language of signs imposed on it by capital, the shape of these things uh, effectively. The shape is always set by capital. The story is always set by capital. Does anyone, is anyone more familiar with McLuhan by chance? I think the point that he's trying to make, you know, I mean, from the from the time um, when he wrote this to now, we have a lot more experience with software and uh, computers and stuff like that. So, um, you know, if you take the example of the ASCII code, you know, the letters are figures, but they're just randomly assigned to these uh, bit patterns. And so I think I think what they're trying to get at here is that the, you know, you have these flows of bit patterns now, and it's the relationship of the figures to the bit patterns that they're talking about. Well, so so I, I'm not super familiar with McLuhan's writings. I've I've read a bit. Um, I'm far bigger into media theory than kind of a lot of other things. Um, his big thing is uh, the concept that the media medium is the message. The the medium matters in how a person takes in content. Uh, that the the way that content is shaped effectively through the mediums is actually uh, itself a message that we need to understand. Yeah, Tiernan nailed it. A generic thing about McLuhan is the medium is the message. Non-signifying signs have no medium. That's that's essentially the short version of him. Um, very, uh, very yeah. specifically. So uh, that's why everything gets um, decoded in a sense with this new uh, digital technologies. Everything is just uh, condensed or translated into the language of one and zero. And without retranslating it or transforming it, mediating it through another medium, uh, it is very uh, unlikely that it means anything to us. We just have to translate it back in, into another medium and by that creating a form of expression figures that have these uh, information uh, bits as content like when we transform um, the binary code to a form of um, picture on our screens or we can translate it into a diagram or as um, an audio signal and just by this transformation it gets some form of uh, semiotic meaning and in the last sentence um, both um, of them uh, Deleuze and Guattari uh, speak about that um, capitalism mm -mm, um, that the language of science imposed on it by merchant capital or the axiomatic of the market that these um, globally decoded flows uh, by new media technology uh, just get their meaning through these merchants of capital or these axiomatics of the market. So, uh, Alyosha is asking uh, to talk through the Cloverleaf Highway example. And before I dive in, because I know I've already given him my answer, um, uh, if someone would love to dive in and give their analysis on why they use they use the series example of the cloverleaf highway. Well, uh, you know, the cloverleafs, you know, have uh, this um, hyper efficiency 
because you know in the in the streets you know the traffic is all interfering with itself as it comes to the 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 street crossings and so you know in a highway the um you get rid of this interference and maybe so maybe they're talking about the the rise of networks um of information like for instance uh, you know i don't know what year they put the cable down across the atlantic so they got the first uh you know kind of highway of information between europe and america uh at a certain point For me, on this one, the way I read it is, uh, again, if we're talking about the medium as the message or how flows work inside of all of these societies, the difference with a lot of things versus a cloverleaf highway, which is a decidedly, you know, mid 19th century invention and later, is that information uh, has the ability to flow very freely. Uh, that you can go in any way you want, you can come out any other side you want uh, with just a handful of turns. And at no point will you find or run into other bits of information that are going different directions or come from different directions. It's the nature of, I mean, it sounds like it's the nature of flows inside of any one of these, uh, any inside of uh, just general network concept of how information moves. And so they use the, the which far from canceling flows contains them and sets them in motion then the nature of these things instead of actually canceling flows or setting them up gives them the ability to run freely without running into anything that holds it back but it has to be in that shape in order to do that and that's that last line this cordoning off of production through information shows once again productive essence of capitalism functions or speaks only in the language of signs imposed on it by capital or the axiomatic so the Wait, first for other people the first transatlantic uh, cable was 1956 before that there was a telegraph cable 1850 so that's just an example of these highways of information. Uh, to mention and quote also, uh, th this is from uh, uh, Statues, Michael Seri's book, and to read just a little bit uh, around that. The element unit atom today becomes the interchange. You stay in a place, you go there, you come from it, but you go through a crossroads. Pedestrians pass through the guichets of the Louvre, cluttered with traffic, or transit between the Rue de Rivoli and the quays of the Seine, through which the underground passageway and intersect those who are hurrying from the carousel to the Concorde. Singularities populated a compact and dense expanse. Interchanges smooth it out. If you want to draw a contemporary garden, think about a supple or undone knot with soft curves in a clover leaf or about a complex computer ship. The ancient parks accumulated, dissimulating them a little, astonishing differences. Don't forget that the interchange is a desert, a place with a fourth type where we no longer stop. Uh, that's a lot of serious stuff about the network theory in general. It's about how we don't stop.
Yeah, that's uh, the whole thing of Michel Serres. Uh, he's uh, pretty into information theory and developed a cybernetic uh, communication theory um, where everything is uh, like like a, a field, a network with, with different, different edges and knots. And although the knots stay the same as he writes here in this quote, uh, it can uh, also change by the connections that uh, can be strengthened or weakened by use or by not use and uh, in this way a point can still uh, be multi-dimensional and he uses the, this also as a critique on uh, dialectical reasoning it's it's a really worthwhile book can you say his name one more time so i never mispronounce it again uh michel Serres. michel says excellent uh i i really liked his writing so it's really good media theory shit for sure very interesting. Uh, any last comments before we move on? Because we're about to dive into another example of a different author. And I think there's two more actually in this, one of which I'm not going to pronounce correctly. Uh, I just know that already. All, all right. Um, there are great differences between such a linguistics of flows and the linguistics of a signifier. So Saucerian linguistics, for example, in effect, discovers a field of eminence constituted by value, i.e. by the system of relations among ultimate elements of the signifier. But apart from the fact that this field of eminence still presupposes the transcendence of the signifier, which uncovers the field, if only through the signifier's own withdrawal, the elements populating this field have for a criterion a minimal identity that they owe to their relations of opposition <clears throat> and that they keep throughout all the types of variations affecting them. The elements of the signifier as distinguishing units are regulated by coded gaps that the signifier overcodes in its turn. Their result, diverse but always convergent consequences. The comparison of language to a game, the signified signifier relationship where the signified finds itself by nature subordinated to the signifier, figures defined as effects of the signifier itself, the formal elements of the signifier determined in relation to a phonic substance on which writing even confers a secret privilege. We believe that from all points of view and despite certain appearances, Louis Yelmslev's linguistics stands in profound opposition to the Saucerian and post-Saucerian undertaking because it abandons all privileged preference because it describes a pure field of algebraic eminence that no longer allows any surveillance on the part of a transcendent instance, even one that is withdrawn because within this field, it sets in motion its flows of form and substance, content and expression. Because it substitutes the relationship of reciprocal precondition between expression and content for the relationship of subordination between signifier and signified. Because there no longer occurs a double articulation between two hierarchized levels of language, but between two convertible deterritorialized planes, constituted by the relation between the form of content and the form of expression. 
Because in this relation, one reaches figures that are no longer effects of a signifier, but skizzes, points, signs, or flows breaks that collapse the wall of the signifier, pass through, and continue beyond. Because these signs have crossed a new threshold of deterritorialization, because these figures have definitively lost the minimum conditions of identity that defined the elements of the signifier itself, because in Helmslev's linguistics, the order of ele the elements is secondary in relation to the axiomatic of flows and figures. Because the money model in the point sign, or in the figure break stripped of its identity, having now only a floating identity, tends to replace the model of the game. In short, Helmslev's very special position in linguistics, and the reactions he provokes, seems to be explained by the following that he tends to fashion a purely eminent theory of language that shatters the double game of the voice graphism domination that causes form and substance, content and expression to flow according to the flows of desire, and that breaks these flows according to point signs and figure schizes. Far from being an overdetermination of structuralism, and of its fondness for the signifier, Yomslev's linguistics implies the concerted destruction of the signifier and constitutes a decoded theory of language about which one can also say, an ambiguous tribute, that it is the only linguistics adapted to the nature of both the capitalist and the schizophrenic flows, until now the only modern and not archaic theory of language. I'm going to start by asking if I pronounced that name correctly and if anyone actually knows. I'm pretty sure that's right. How you said yeah, it? Yeah, would say so. Okay, good. That's, you know what? That's my victory for the day. Uh, is anyone actually familiar with his works in general? Because I am not at all. And I spent a little bit of time Googling and somehow I'm less familiar after Googling. No, I never, I never studied that. No, me neither. I just know uh, that he is very popular now in in some semiotic circles in in uh, North Europe, and that Umberto Eco tried to uh, combine uh, Hermslev's uh, semiotics with uh, that one of uh, Charles Sanders' purse, uh, but I only know the purse side. I think I've read that Deleuze actually picks him up at other places. I'm not sure, but I think logical sense. Yeah, it's a whole thing. And it's there's just a, a, semiotics is not a simple. I mean, it's obviously not something I can like get through in a few moments, but I am not even able to find a summary of like what this is. Uh, the prologomena to a theory of language was his first big critique and uh, I can't even come close to grasping it at all oh plateau three as well it's in really well fuck now I've got to read some other stuff uh, but I'll read from uh, Wikipedia so that way we can have a very short, shitty version that's sourced that I have no idea if it's accurate. Uh, Yelmslev's sign model is a development of Saussure's bilateral sign model. 
So Seward considered his sign as having two sides, the signifier and the signified. Yelmslev's famously renamed signifier and signified as respectively expression plane and content plane and distinguished between form and substance. The combinations of the four would distinguish between form of content, form of expression, substance of content, and substance of expression. In Yelmslev's analysis, a sign is a function between two forms, the content form and the expression form, and this is the starting point of linguistic analysis. However, every sign function is also manifested by two substances, the content substance and the expression substance. The content substance is the physical and conceptual manifestation of the sign. The expression substance is the physical substance, whereas the sign is manifested. This substance can be sound, as is the case for most known spoken languages, but it can be any material support whatsoever. For instance, hand movements in the case of sign language or distinctive marks on the suitable medium as many in the writing systems of the world. In short, Yomslev was proposing an open-ended scientific method of analysis as a new semiotics. In proposing this, he was reacting against the conventional view in phonetics that sound should be the focus of inquiry. Some have interpreted his work as if Yomslev argued that no sign can be interpreted unless it's contextualized, treating his functives, expression and content, as the general connotative mechanisms. For Yelmslev, the point of view of the linguist on meaning is that that of the form of content. Even if the content substance is important, one has to analyze it from the point of view of the form. Not only do pictures and literature manifest the same organizing principles, but more broadly, seeing and hearing, though certainly not identical, interact in complex ways at deeper levels of the sign hierarchy which Yelmslev sought to understand. Sounds like a continuation of the concept of medium as the mesh, but broken down in a much more interesting and complicated way. So let's uh, let me find a book of his, and we will see what we can do about getting that on our. Well, it sounds like a uh, refined form of what Simondon calls heliomorphism, but taking into account the 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 substance substrate, the medium, taking into account the medium as well. And it's interesting how he breaks these things apart. So you have the four quadrants of the whole thing, the form and substance being two separate things when it comes to the the medium or however you want to put it. That's really, I like that a lot. That's it's it's going to be fun to read. So um, to go back to this, uh, we believe that from all points of view and despite certain appearances, Yelmslev's linguistics stands in profound opposition to post-Cesarean undertaking because it abandons all privileged reference, because it describes a pure field of eminence that no longer allows surveillance on part of a transcendent instance, even one that is withdrawn, because within this field, it sets in motion its flows of form and substance, content and expression, because it substitutes the relationship of reciprocal precondition between expression and content for the relationship of subordination between signifier and signified. Well, this is, yeah, this is probably going to be really important to understand. So uh, we'll put a pen in that guy. Any questions or thoughts before we move on uh, to the next section, the next uh, paragraph? Uh, just reading on the Wikipedia, it looks like uh, uh, Helmslev's uh, influenced Grema and Grema's uh, semiotics. So that's, that's interesting. 
Yeah, the more the more I'm googling on him, the more it's like, oh, this is uh, a, a cutting edge. Would that be a thing? This is like this has influenced really interesting thoughts. Uh, it's, it's going to be really important, I think, to grasp his stuff a lot. But yeah, no, a, th- a thousand plateaus, uh, plateau three. You're right, Doug. I'm just I'm going through all the different places where they've um, set him up. Uh, pages 71 through 72, page 44. Difference in repetition uh, as well. Like, okay, this is good to know. <sighs> More stuff to try to understand. But it is an interesting thought, essentially, about talking through uh, writing no longer being the the useful thing. Because to to very simplistically put this out, uh, the spoken word, the voice, is primitive, and how uh, communication was made, uh, all the way through to the despotic, where writing became how orders were sent, and it was from on high, from the despot from his bureaucrats, his perverted bureaucrats, as they say. Uh, And then now we've moved beyond writing to flows of information, that it's not even about any specific uh, word or written thing or signifier. It's about these flows and how they move in and out. And that seems to be what this this paragraph is really trying to get at now that I have a better grasp in general of Yomslev. Is that a fair summary or am I way off base? Then I will continue to the next paragraph, which is thankfully much shorter. Uh, by the way, before I go, is anyone here very familiar with Leotard? Or nope. just familiar? Uh, better than me. That works. I'm going to want someone to go through and explain this when I stop talking at the end of the paragraph. The extreme importance of J.F. Leotard's recent book is due to its position as the first generalized critique of the signifier. In his most general proposition, in fact, he shows that the signifier is overtaken towards the outside by figurative images, just as it is overtaken toward the inside by the pure figures that compose it, or more decisively, by the figural that comes to short-circuit the signifier's coded gaps, inserting itself between them and working under the conditions of identity of their elements. In language, and in writing itself, sometimes the letters as breaks, as shattered partial objects, and sometimes the words as undivided flows, as non-decomposable blocks or full bodies having a tonic value, constitute a signifying signs that deliver themselves over to the order of desire, rushes of breath and cries. In particular, formal investigations concerning manual or printed writing change their meaning according to whether the characteristics of the letters and the quality of the words are in service of a signifier, whose effects they express following exegetical rules. Ah, I'm sorry. Or whether, on the contrary, they break through this wall so as to set flows in motion and establish breaks that overflow or rupture the signs conditions of identity and that cause books within the book to flow and to disintegrate entering into multiple configurations whose possibilities were already the object of the typographical exercises of Malarm always passing underneath the signifier filing through the wall which again shows that the death of writing is infinite so long as it arises and arrives from within 
And uh, Lou, that's why you don't need to feel bad when you couldn't pronounce exegesis earlier because I, it's my first language and I suck at it. Exegetical, exegetical is I think the word that they were, I'm looking for there. Could not do it. Goddamn. Uh, so what does this mean? Yeah. I'm, oh, okay. So he has a book called Discourse and Figure. So that's probably the book they're referring to. That's recent. Uh, yes, it is. I'm not sure whether it's referenced here explicitly, but the German translation does have a footnote explicating discourse and figure. Okay, so that, it was just recently translated, I guess. Neither have I, and uh, nor have I. I nor do I even know. Um, I'm sure I pronounced it wrong. Mayarm. Typographical exercises of Mayarm. Uh, let's let's try to break this down a little bit. Uh, so, uh, Leotard's recent book, the one they're referring to, is what? Which one again? Discourse and figure. Discourse and figure. Let's let's see if they're. Uh, no Sorry, say that again. Without the end. Ah, yeah, it's just um, a discourse figure. That's pretentious. Um, all right, to read from uh, something online, Leotard's second book of philosophy is long and difficult. God damn it. It covers a wide range of topics, blah, blah, blah. Oh, Hegelian dialectics, wonderful. Uh, main thrust of this work, however, is a critique of structuralism, particularly as it manifests itself in Lacan's psychoanalysis. Uh, the book is divided into two parts. The first uses Merleau-Ponte's phenomenology to undermine structuralism. The second uses Freudian psychoanalysis to undermine both Salkanian psychoanalysis and certain aspects of phenomenology. Leotard begins with an opposition between discourse, related to structuralism and a written text, and figure, a visual image, related to phenomenology and seeing. He suggests that structured, abstract conceptual thought has dominated philosophy since Plato, denigrating sensual experience, sensual experience. The written text and the experience of reading are associated with the former and figures, images, and experience of seeing it with the latter. Part of Leotard's aim is to defend the importance of the figural and sensual experience such as seeing. He proceeds to deconstruct this opposition, however, and attempts to show that discourse and figure are mutually implicated. Discourse contains elements of the figural, poetry and illuminated texts are good examples, and visual space can be destructed like discourse when it is broken up into ordered elements in order for a word to be world to be recognizable and navigable by the seeing subject. He develops an idea of the figural as a disruptive force which works to interrupt established structures in the realms of both reading and seeing. Ultimately, the point is not to privilege the figural over the discursive, but to show how these elements must negotiate with each other. The mistake of structuralism is to interpret the figural in entirely discursive terms, ignoring the different ways in which these elements operate. It sounds like uh, that's a um, one of the influences on Deleuze for cinema series because in the cinema series the the, the um, you know in volume one 
he talks about the uh, person's signs, but in relationship to certain kinds of images. And so, you know, he has the, uh, he has, I think, three different kinds of uh, images, which might be the figure and then the signs within them. And so there's a kind of tension between the the image and the and the sign. So it sounds like Leotard might be saying something similar to that. But and, and again I think the the underlying sort of idea here I think carries through and they just are kind of beating it over and over with a handful of different hey look look at all these people who've written things recently here's the direction they're going and here's a paragraph about one here's a paragraph about another here's another and they're all essentially uh and from again i don't know leotard super well but uh most of these people are pointing to the idea that uh the the shape of a sign and the signifier, the way that it, it is communicated, what it is, is, especially in capitalism, as important as literally what is just said. Um, and again, they've been kind of exploding this as we go from the primitive where a voice, a thing is said, it is, it is what it is, to the despot where there's, what do they mean by that? I need to have an understanding. Who gives this note to me? Oh my God, it's, it's God, it's the despot, all the way to capital where we've evolved to the point where now we have this massive multidimensional way of communicating, not just uh, for technical images, but in terms of how pictures operate, advertising operates, all of those things uh, inside of a capitalist society. The medium and the message aren't just, it's not just a voice, that there's a multidimensional nightmare that's happening inside of every single sign and signifier that is being screamed at all the time. that causes books within the book to flow and disintegrate, entering into multiple configuration whose possibilities were already the object of typographical exercises, always passing underneath the signifier, filing through the wall, which again shows that the death of writing is infinite so long as it arises and arrives from within. Um, the, the way things are communicated are as important as what is communicated and there's a lot of dimensionality to that. Just my short version. You know, what I got out of the cinema series was that the, uh, you know, you can you can see this operation on the level of signs, but at a certain point, there's a phase transition. And, uh, you know, the, the, the figure or the image becomes the emergent thing that needs to be dealt with because it, it's it's the thing which makes up the montage. The montage is made up of the images. So if you if you think of the cinema screen as giving you you know all of all of the this information, and that information is somewhat overwhelming, but it's a montage of images that within that there are signs. But the, but the 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 kind of overwhelming thing is the is the figure. The, what he's calling the figural image. Well, and there's the the famous example. I need to look up the name for it. It's not coming to me immediately. But there's a early film that was done, uh, sort of to explore how montage as a concept works. And I'm and Deleuze references it. Um, 
but it's a it's just a man's face and they replicate the man's face against and edit it alongside of a, a woman a dead woman a good meal a child like these uh is it is it eisenstein i can't remember yeah, Sergei eisenstein yes but it's yeah. it's that 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 film is is a great example of like the message there like there's there's a meta message obviously but the the medium itself is literally communicating to us with the medium itself being the signifier effectively and that's that's what they're kind of getting into here because without those edits without the film being what it is and the things placed in the order they're in that complex interplay itself delivers different messages than any element of itself would were it done in any other way or even spoken of uh Main media theory is super complex like this. We want to get into it for, say, video games. There is a huge amount of debate happening right now amongst uh, sort of creatives in the games industry about how uh, people inside of video games, when you play things first person or third person, you're, you're, you've got different ways of taking in that information and allying yourself inside of essentially a vehicle because that's what you're doing is you're driving a vehicle because you're holding a controller and you're pushing forward to go forward, A to jump, that kind of stuff. Uh, but that that mediation is something that our brains are able to take into account and play with. But that versus, say, virtual reality where you are the vehicle yourself. And the way that you take in the information is drastically different. And that obviously flows downhill uh, to everything. That's books versus comics versus film versus television even. Everything has its own signifier and setup. That seems to be the direction. At least these chap these paragraphs are kind of pushing towards. Is just being very conscious of that and that the flows of information and the flows of desire that are flowing through and through everything are constantly sort of switching around for that. Complex, complex, complicated. All right, I'm going to continue to the next paragraph then. Unless anyone has other points. Similarly, in the plastic arts, there is the pure figural dimension formed by the active line and the multidimensional point. And on the other hand, the multiple configurations formed by the passive line and the surface it engenders. So as to reveal, as in Paul Klee, those intermundia that perhaps are visible only to children, madmen, and primitives. Or in dreams, in some very beautiful pages, Leotard shows that what is at work in dreams is not the signifier, but a figural dimension underneath, which gives rise to configurations of images that make use of words, making them flow and cutting them according to flows and points that are not linguistic and do not depend on the signifier or its regulated elements. Thus, Leotard everywhere reverses the order of the signifier and the figure. It is not the figures that depend on the signifier and its effects, but the signifying chain that depends on the figural effects, this chain itself being composed of asignifying signs. Crushing the signifiers as well as the signifieds, treating words as things, fabricating new unities, creating from non-figurative figures configurations of images that form and then disintegrate. And Constellations are like flows that imply the breaks affected by points, just as points imply the fluxion of the material they cause to flow or leak. The sole unity without identity is that of the flux skiz or the break flow, the pure figural element, the figure matrix. 
Leotard correctly names desire, which carries us to the gates of schizophrenia as a process. Um, well, well, sorry, go this, ahead, Ken. There you go. This again uh, reminds me of the what's in cinema series where the where the the signs are inside of the images. They're not they're not dominating the images, but they are a function of the image. They are, and they're uh, shaped by. I, you know, when Deleuze goes deeply in in the cinema series about how the framing works, how frames work inside of uh, a single shot, uh, and the the interplay between the signs inside of it as well as the frame itself being its own effective. I don't know what's. I don't know what the word would be. Signifier. I'm going to just say that because it's wrong, but it's really interesting to. Uh, see the sort of these things be germinated inside of this. Um, Paul Klee, uh, Alyosha is going over it, uh, is worth noting uh, as being a extraordinary cubist uh, uh, in that tradition, and some of his things are just beautiful. Uh, I I really loved his art. I've seen I've been fortunate to see it a handful of times. It's just gorgeous. But what explains the reader's impression that Leotard is continually arresting the process and steering the schizes towards shores he has so recently left behind, toward coded or overcoded territories, spaces and structures to which they bring only transgressions, disorders and deformations that are secondary in spite of everything, instead of forming and transporting further the desiring machines that are in opposition to the structures and the intensities that are in opposition to the spaces. The explanation is that, despite his attempt at linking desire to a fundamental yes, Leotard reintroduces lack and absence into desire, maintains desire under the law of castration at the risk of restoring the entire signifier along with the law, and discovers the matrix of the figure in fantasy, the simple fantasy that comes to veil desiring production, the whole of desire as effective production. But at least for an instant, the mortgage of the signifier was raised, that enormous archaism that causes so many of us to groan and bow under its weight, and that others use to establish a new terrorism, diverting Lacan's imperial discourse into a university discourse characterized by a pure scientificity. That scientificity, perfectly suited for resupplying our neuroses, for strangling the process once again, and for overcoating Oedipus with castration, while chaining us to the current structure structural functions of a vanished archaic despot, for it is certain that even and especially in their manifestations of extreme force, neither capitalism nor revolution nor schizophrenia follows the paths of the signifier. So are they saying that the, the signifier is a load of shit in modern day? Well, I, th I think they're saying that there's this broader context of the image that kind of missed out because of uh, this concentration on semiotics. Saying that semiotics is a load of shit, I think. And then, and if semiotics is a load of shit, then Lacan is a load of shit, which is why they start talking about castration and, and Oedipus. And the signifiers. I mean, the, a lot of this is basically... Like, I don't know a ton about Leot... I know Leotard didn't like Lacan, and I know Lacan is not... Like, those are fire and water kind of things. Uh so, I mean, they're bringing it up. They're basically trying to take down Lacan throughout this entire section. No wonder Zizek hates their guts. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's just easier to say they're saying semiotics in itself effectively is by by making the assumption that semiotics is real, we've naturally shaped the discussion in a way that causes semiotics to be real, but it's also causing desire to be abstracted in a way that is damaging. So we're we're starting from a place of damaging. And that's, I think a few of their comments here really echo that, that it's a lot of the, like Oedipus, essentially on the nuclear family, and it teaches us that we have these desires, but in reality we don't, uh, that those desires come after the fact, after the three syntheses, um, that this shapes us by making these assumptions. So if, if we go back, is that then, not to, just as a wonder, they seem to be going deeply and saying that they agree with things like Yelmslev's uh, uh, linguistics. They really like his. Is his not an argument of semiotics, or are they just sort of saying, like, these are all the people who've started to get the idea, but none of them took it far enough. In fact, semiotics overall is kind of garbage. I wouldn't say that it is a pure critique of semiotics or semiology, as it is better, uh, as it is a better name for uh, the structuralist, uh, but more on Lyotard that he just didn't fully embrace his his own notion, like uh, Deleuze and Guattari would, in this uh, acceptance of of imminence and desire, but that he uh, he. Like in, in, in a metaphorical sense, he kills Oedipus, but he uh, uh, then brings him back in a negative way by by this this image of castration. Um, oh, okay. So, so it basically, uh, Leotard didn't have enough faith in Leotard to take it all the way through, and instead got stuck inside of Freud. You know what it sounds like to me is that. You know, the when you've gone down to the structural and the semiotic level, then this is a reaction where you're going back up to the f level of form and figure and image, and and suddenly recontextualizing the uh, the signs within a broader framework of the, like for instance, the montage of the images in the cinema. So I'm trying to figure out. Um, hi everybody. I'm trying to understand. Um, exactly how Deleuze and Guattari see uh, meaning as arising. So the way I'm reading all of this is, uh, you know, first Saussure and now Lyotard, uh, they don't fully do away with hierarchy, seems like. Um, and Lyotard maybe comes close, but then he reintroduces some kind of hierarchical element. Uh, the signifier, you know, comes back. And uh, it seems the suggestion is from um, uh, from Deleuze and Guattari is that like there is this flux and this flow of elements and relations which is all in a single plane, and somehow that generates meaning, and it's a kind of bottom up. Uh, and really, what matters there is the, this productive desire that um, is really doing work within that, on, the, on, the, on that level plane, uh, the plane of imminence. Uh, 
And I'm just trying to understand, okay, so what, what kind of meaning does that leave us with? Um, and, you know, so they, they talk here about, there's this uh, phrase, the, uh, this chain itself being composed of asignifying signs. So, like, seems like everything is already a sign, kind of at the, at the bottom, on the very bottom level, ontologically, everything is a sign, but the sign is not signifying, not really sure what that means. Uh, but it seems like it's this interplay of the flows, this kind of cutting and skidsing and uh, these breaks that are somehow meant to introduce meaning. And uh, it actually sounds to me a lot like, in other works, they describe the simulacra and how simulacra are formed. This sounds a lot like that. Um, I guess I'm wondering if I'm reading that correctly. And um, But also, like, what kind of meaning then are we left with? Uh, I, is, I don't think you're reading it incorrectly. Like I, I would, I, I don't know about correctly because I'm not certain I'm reading it correctly, but I don't think you're, you're like way off or in some weird place. Like uh, the, the way I'm taking it is their specific issue with a lot of this is, and they keep going back to is the concept of the signifier or master signifier in Lacanian terms that, that, that is the thing where, in which meaning comes from that signs are given meaning. But uh, to Alyosha's point, uh, meanings are generated as an accident, not as something direct, directly signified by the flows. So to, to say it another way, um, the, their, their definition of virtual is where uh, the interplay of things creates. It's, it's not material, but it's real. And I think the that virtual is to me where meaning is adopted. It's flows and how flows move, and then us seeing those things, and then the interplay of those is where meaning would come from. I think, but it that's kind of beside the point. To me, this this specifically is about the signifier and the concept of the signifier and kind of that uh, privileging of it that they are drastically fighting against. So I guess this is what you get. I mean, I'm just kind of trying to situate this. Um, seems like what they're after is a is a. I'm also reading what Alosha is, is saying. Uh, seems like they're after a theory of meaning that's purely mechanical or machinic. And really, what that means is there's no such thing as teleology. There's no such thing as intentionality, really, in the you know the way that other philosophers will talk about that. But it's just that, you know, there's this machinic process and it does a whole bunch of things, you know, things are flow and they get cut up in various ways. And that's really all that meaning is, you know, it's just the workings of the machine. Yeah. And not only that, but uh, that meaning isn't merely uh, a concept or distilled in uh, in some arbitrary signifier uh, in a semiotic sense but they try to base their semiotics uh, if you can can call it that on a material basis that uh, these are uh, actual imminent processes that are happening uh, especially uh, the, these flows of desire. And that's the critique here on, on Lyotard, that he doesn't affirm uh, in a pure sense this, this uh, uh, positive um, 
desiring flows and that he tries to to link them back to some kind of uh, negative conceptual uh, thing like here the the lack of something uh, and he doesn't appreciate it, this, this whole flowing in in itself as a pure uh, radical empiricism i think you also have to remember like sort of what the whole purpose of this project is in a way they're they're responding to all these contemporary debates about freud and marx and they're trying to respond to different conceptions of why human beings do what they do as cliche or basic as that sounds so like the idea of you know if you think about the freudian subject or the psychoanalytic subject you know i think in their minds no matter how fancy you dress it up there's always an obsession with you know what are the conscious or subconscious reasons behind human humans behavior and why do they do the things that they do there has to be some kind of fundamental either in the lacanian sense a kind of lack that they're striving to fill or in a Freudian sense, these different drives that are composed of fantasies and illusions and different traumas and repressions. And, you know, this whole idea, this insane, but fascinating project of trying to prove that, you know, the economic production and desiring production are actually different things that are all part of one process, which is the whole creation of the social. It, I feel like it's, well, it's, this is their idea of trying to get away from, ways of explaining society that would sort of split things where you have a kind of you have your little economic analysis here and then you have this quaint way of describing human psychology over here um and i think this idea of a signifying signs and desiring flows and production you know this is what kind of like the first few hundred pages what we've been stumbling through and i think that's kind of the idea is uh meaning is this you know even when they talk about dreams or they talk about I guess the classic psychoanalytical approach would be to look at a dream and say, okay, what does this mean? And why are these things happening? And throughout, I think they're as confusing as they are. I think they are pretty consistent in talking about, you know, why are we looking for meaning is you're already kind of missing the points that these desiring flows like a river or like any kind of flow, they, they move in a direction and then through their, the shape of their movement and the things that happen to them, production, anti-production and all of that, shapes of things come out of that you know things get eroded and new shapes emerge and something that looks like a subject comes out of that but it's not a subject that desires in a sort of active sense at least not the way we would traditionally understand it so i I, maybe that's uh, simplistic but i feel like that's always good to keep in mind well, it's just the one line that's in the previous paragraph. Um, it is not the figures that depend on the signifier and its effects, but the signifying chain that depends on the figural effects. This chain itself being composed of a signifying signs, crushing the signifiers as well as the signified. Seems to be exactly what you're saying there, Alyosha. So for me, what I would do is go back to uh, logic of sense and try to kind of understand what they're trying to get at. And and basically what they're saying in there is that the surface of the unconscious is this uh, kind of uh, kind of seething bed of of, of of sense and nonsense. And we're, we're constantly trying to distinguish the sense from the nonsense. And in that book, they say you should stay away from the heights, you should stay away from the depths, you should stay just right on the surface of of the unconscious. And in there, they describe these three passive syntheses of Kant and Heidegger, uh, which are like imagination, memory, and cognition. 
And um, but in this book, they, they they've kind of like gone beyond that surface. They're they they're saying, okay, in the unconscious, there are these three syntheses. There's the connective and the the uh, the disjunctive and the conjunctive syntheses. And it's those syntheses that are producing these images and within the images producing the signs. And and really, it's it seems like it's the images that are the most important thing. Um, you know, and kind of the way that I understand it is that, you know, you got you have uh, conjunction and I mean, connection and disjunction kind of producing the field. And then there's this emergent effect that happens with the conjunction where you get different things presencing to each other. And and that's what would appear in the montage of the image, the different figures that are presencing to each other. Uh, one of the things, because this is, to go back to our mega review we just did, uh, this is hitting on a lot of the same questions and things we were debating and then i was reading uh I, I don't even know if this is a good source but i liked what this guy wrote um the on signification specifically um imagine that after study into the mysterious stone tablet it was ascertained that the script belongs to no language past or present but to the scrawlings of a madman who nonetheless intended to denote things with his private language it's not enough that we intend to denote for a proposition of meaning. It needs to occur within a language that always goes beyond the original manifester, an entire network of signs relating to one another. It could be argued that could the madman be interviewed, he could provide the explanation of the symbols that the symbols could denote and his attention would be vindicated. However, how would he provide such an explanation to us if not by using language or language we know or across some other sign system that is only effective insofar as it is shared and complete? Uh, this is the essence of signification inside of Deleuze. The eye that manifests is born into already a system of signification that makes it possible to intend denotations. The dimension of signification refers to all that needs to be in place for the proposition to be reliably denoted in the first place. Logical structure, lexicon, syntax, grammar. So it would seem that signification is the ground or the most fundamental dimension. But is it? Denotation turned us towards manifestation, which turned us towards signification. Does the buck stop there? No. Uh, and this is, uh, if you don't know, uh, logic of sense goes deeply into Lewis Carroll. We see a simple deductive syllogism of the kind all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, so Socrates is mortal. Can only force its conclusion if another premise is granted. The conclusion of valid deductive syllogism is true if all of its premises are true. However, once this premise is added to the original syllogism, a further premise is required for the exact same reason into infinity. If A, B, and C are true, then Z is true, and it equals D. The significations that a system of logic is required, infinite support that a mere, uh, sorry, the significations that a system of logic is require infinite support that a mere appending of additional or definitional premises cannot fully provide because of their necessarily endless pro proliferation. That is a lot of what the, the first the third paradox in logic of sense talks about. It's a really interesting sort of way of talking about where the signifier sense, and it's a good breakdown of logic of sense, I thought. If you want to go into that, I linked to it in the chat. Sorry to ramble for a little bit. This is such an, a fascinating uh, and difficult to understand thing for me. 
I'm going to read uh, what Alyosha wrote. Um, Once you study their ontogenesis, you realize that it is fallacious to talk about the individual in the abstract. So the key thing from Simenden is that is on that is what he calls the pre-individual. And when something happens to the pre-individual, passing through a Kleinemann to evoke ancient terminology, and it individuates into another state, the original state isn't actually lost. The original state remains with all its potentials. So you have two states rather than one new state, the individual. All of that necessitates talking about processes that far predate subjectivity in the way we're used to talking about it. I think that's a very good hot take. And Lou, tell me if I'm wrong, but that follows our discussion of how the three syntheses work uh, in producing the subject after the fact. Yeah. So yeah, thanks, Lou. That's why we have you. It's that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, that's that's basically what our, our mega review kind of covered is that uh, because if we're talking about when meaning comes through and is signified, we also need to talk about when the subject is created in their own experiences. And it happens after the three syntheses. It doesn't happen before or during. It's after the fact. And only once the subject is created, it is meaning allowed to be created, essentially. It's an interesting sort of, yeah, it's a lot. Did that answer anything you were saying, Al Dreams, or are you just now more upset with us? No, that helps, definitely. Yeah, I think I'm getting a good picture. It's a that, that link has a really good breakdown of logic and sense. Uh, my, my, I, I got a copy. It's on the way, um, but it's it's a hell of a read. It seems so. I've been looking for really good sort of summations and breakdowns. And I mean, Lewis Carroll. If you're not familiar with Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass, it's kind of a necessity to read it before you really dive into anything that he talks about, because to him, he uses examples throughout Lewis Carroll's work on how the sub this where meaning is found and how we're able to find meaning inside of things that are literally paradoxical and that concept of sense that's what he's that's what he's really driving at is the the logic of sense that's what the thing is about is the that understanding that we get it's a really interesting setup i'm not going to pretend to be an ex- expert on it though but i am going to read the next uh paragraph now Civilization is defined by the decoding and deterritorialization of flows in capitalist production. Any method will do for ensuring this universal decoding. The privatization brought to bear on property goods and the means of production, but also the organs of private man himself. The abstraction of monetary quantities, but also the abstraction of quantity of labor. The limitless nature of the relationship between capital and labor capacity and the flows of financing and the flows of incomes or means of payment. The scientific and technical form assumed by flows of code themselves. The formation of floating configurations starting from lines and points without a discernible identity. The route taken by the decoded flows is traced by recent monetary history, the role of the dollar, short-term migrating capital, the floating of currencies, the new means of financing and credit, the special drawing rights, and the new form of crises and speculation. Our societies exhibit a marked taste for all codes, codes foreign or exotic, but this taste is destructive and morbid. 
Well, decoding doubtless means understanding and translating a code. It also means destroying the code as such, assigning it an archaic, folkloric, or residual function, which makes of psychoanalysis and ethnology two disciplines highly regarded in our modern societies. Yet it would be serious error to consider the capitalist flows and the schizophrenic flows as identical under the general theme of a decoding of the flows of desire. Their affinity is great, to be sure. Everywhere, capitalism sets in motion schizoflows that animate our arts and our sciences, just as they congeal into the production of our own sick, the schizophrenics. We have seen that the relationship of schizophrenia to capitalism went far beyond problems of modes of living, environment, ideology, and that it should be examined at the deepest level of one and the same economy, one and the same production process. Our society produces schizos the same way it produces Prell shampoo or Ford cars. The only difference being the schizos are not saleable. How then does one explain the fact that capitalist production is constantly arresting the schizophrenic process and transforming the subject of the process into a confined clinical entity, as though it saw in this process the image of its own death coming from within? Why does it make the schizophrenic into a sick person, not only nominally, but in reality? Why does it confine its madmen and mad women instead of seeing in them its own heroes and heroines, its own fulfillment? And where it can no longer recognize the figure of simple illness, why does it keep its artists and even scientists under close surveillance, as though they risked unleashing flows that would be dangerous for capitalist production and charged with a revolutionary potential, so long as these flows are not co-opted or absorbed by the laws of the market? Why does it form, in turn, a gigantic machine for social repression, psychic repression, aimed at what nevertheless constitutes its own reality, the decoded flows? Does anyone want to go over any part of this? Because it was a very, I think, fairly clearly straightforward bit here, as much as they may be using uh, complex language, this felt generally more clear to me. Um, the biggest yeah. point I think going through here is that capitalist flows and schizophrenic flows, because they both feel like decoding, uh, it might be easy to mistake them as identical, but they are not. They are close. They are friendly. Uh, and capitalism always allows, like there's just constantly schizo flows being created. Uh, they use the arts and scientists, the anti-production and as well as schizophrenics themselves as examples, but they are not the same thing as the flows of capital. Then uh, I don't even know about deeply antagonistic friends. I would, um, I, I think one is it's two brothers, uh, one of whom uh, knows how to play the game, and the other one doesn't care about the game, and the one feeds off the other like a like a fucking parasite yeah, it's interesting uh the part with the um surveillance of artists and scientists especially of artists uh, reminds me a bit of um adorno's take on uh, aesthetics and the residual nature of art against uh um yeah subsumation under the axiomatic of the market because there's always this this revolutionary impulse uh this rest of uh some uh, some sort of uh anti-economic uh logic within art no no and, and i think 
the the scientists too, and they talked about this earlier about how the the scientists, the researchers, the academics who are effectively anti-producing and are the parts of the schizo flow, that revolutionary power that's constant, are the ones that feed society. I mean, I I I believe this wholly, regardless. But I they talk about it uh, throughout this so far, and I know they get into it a little bit further on, is that those things are created, and at some point they go, oh. Great, you've made a thing. Now it's time to make money is kind of how the capitalist flows go. Now it's time to make money, so let's make it. How do you need to productize it? Can we get it so it's small enough? Now, how do we get it manufactured inside of China? Where are we? Able, and it's and it subsumes, it falls back on uh, anti-production as it can. But they're not the same thing. It's an interesting. Are they parallel then? I don't know. I don't think parallel is the right word either. Well, to me, what's interesting is that in, you know, our society, only certain people are allowed to be creative. And so, you know, that's the idea of the surveillance of uh, the artists and the scientists that, you know, if you're, if, you know, only, only certain people are allowed to have those jobs, you know, and that if you, if, if you try to be creative and you don't have the proper uh, career uh, going on, then uh, you know there's all these roadblocks to uh, to trying to realize whatever your creative project is. Well, it's, uh, I'm always reminded it was the first. Uh, I don't buy a lot of uh, shit that has cartoons on it for my kid, but when he was little, I got him a little shirt uh, from uh, Existential Philosophy Comics, which is amazing. But it's a scene where. Marx is asking a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, a princess. He goes, no, I meant, how do you want to sell your labor? Which is a great sort of quick commentary on that idea that, you know, everyone, I I think a lot of people have that desire to be something that isn't just a sellable thing inside of the economy. Most people are going to dive into that. Uh, but the revolutionary potential is constantly watched and the flows need to be constantly co-opted. And you see that in, I mean, the great stories of all of it, where it's in um, Minecraft, one of the best-selling video games of all time, started by a guy who had given up on doing sort of standard games and went on the government dole, actually fully welfare. Also, fuck notch. Yes, mandatory fuck notch. But his story, I just adore. It's a... Uh, this Sweden has their safety net. He took care of that and he started making a thing that he literally didn't care about whether or not it would sell. He posted this very simple, stupid game about placing blocks and building. And he posted it on a website that a bunch of people said, oh, it would be cool if you did this. Did not care about capital at all when it first started. And you can go back and see the post. And it's kind of amazing to watch how that shifted and then how it shifted drastically. And now it's a billion dollar machine owned by Microsoft and they're trying to turn it into so much more. Just how it gets, how it went from being almost an artisanal, non-productive thing to being this massive machine. Um, I wanted to bring up something that was sort of slightly different, but maybe going off um, 
some of what we were talking about, the way that art is sort of subsumed by the capitalist axiomatic. Uh, I noticed going over this paragraph again this time around that there was a sort of rhetoric that DNG set up where they critiqued Leotard for not going far enough with the sort of idea of the figural and sort of relegating it to these transgressions that bust open, you know, semiotics in his work uh, to the same way that they talk about capitalism sort of confining the schizo literally in like prisons and stuff. Stuff. And and at the same time, you know, the sort of schizophrenic field that uh, that field of desiring production uh, is the sort of background, right? That capitalism needs to function, just like the figural in Leotard's work is posited as the background of semiotics, but then is relegated into this sort of you know field of being a transgression, where they sort of go back to this Oedipal, despotic way of looking at things. This is a very impressive parallel, I think, that they set up rhetorically with the previous paragraph into this next paragraph. Yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours about all these wonderful examples about all these sort of stories of capital taking over. Uh, I, the, the words that echo in my mind are, uh, if anyone's familiar with Bill Hicks, wonderful comedian, he does a bit about how marketing people should kill themselves, how they're serving Satan. And his bit goes, uh, here's marketing. You should just kill yourself and end it right now. Now, I know a lot of you marketing people are thinking to yourselves, hey, that's Bill Goins for that anti-marketing dollar. That's a good dollar. Uh, I think that's, that just, it feels like that's the, the proper sentiment here. Is <laughs> just how it co-ops everything. But I'm going to continue to the next paragraph. Uh, we got about uh, 15, 20 minutes left. Uh, ish. So we will uh, see what we can get through. The answer, as we have seen, is that capitalism is indeed the limit of all societies, insofar as it brings about the decoding of the flows that the other societal formations coded and overcoded. But it is the relative limit of every society. It affects relative breaks because it substitutes for the codes an extremely rigorous axiomatic that maintains the energy of the flows in a bound state on the body of capital as a socius that is deterritorialized. Oh my God, that's a mouthful. Um, I'm going to reread that, sorry. Um, it substitutes for the codes an extremely rigorous axiomatic that maintains the energy of the flows in a bound state on the body of capital as a socius that is deterritorialized, but also a socius that is even more pitiless than any other. Schizophrenia, on the contrary, is indeed the absolute limit that causes the flows to travel in a free state on a desocialized body without organs. Hence, one can say that schizophrenia is the exterior limit of capitalism itself, or the conclusion of its deepest tendency, but that capitalism only functions on condition that it inhibit this tendency or that it push back or displace this limit by substituting for its own imminent relative limits, which it continually reproduces on a widened scale. It axiomatizes with one hand what it decodes with the other. Such is the way one must reinterpret the Marxist law of the counteracting tendency, with the result that schizophrenia pervades the entire capitalist field from one end to the other. But for capitalism, it is a question of binding the schizophrenic charges and energies into a world axiomatic that always opposes the revolutionary potential of decoded flows with new interior limits 
And it is impossible in such a regime, regime to distinguish, even in two phases, between decoding and the axiomatization that comes to replace the vanished codes. The flows are decoded and axiomatized by capitalism at the same time. Hence, schizophrenia is not the identity of capitalism, but on the contrary, its difference, its divergence, and its death. Monetary flows are perfectly schizophrenic realities, but they exist and function only within the eminent axiomatic that exercises and repels this reality. The language of a banker, a general, an industrialist, a middle or high-level manager, or a government minister is a perfectly schizophrenic language, but that functions only statistically within the flattening axiomatic of connections that puts it in the service of capitalist order. At the highest level of linguistics as a science, Himslev, Himslev is able to affect a vast decoding of language only by setting in motion from the start an axiomatic machine based on the supposed finite number of figures considered. Uh, I think that actually goes to our earlier point that it's an issue they have with uh, the signifier in general and where meaning is made. Just a quick note. Then what becomes of the truly schizophrenic language and the truly decoded and unbound flows that manage to break through the wall or absolute limit? The capitalist axiomatic is so rich that one more axiom is added. For the books of a great writer whose lexical and stylistic characteristics can always be computed by means of an electric machine, electronic machine, or for the discourse of madmen, they can always be heard within the framework of a hospital, administrative, and psychiatric axiomatic. In brief, the notion of break flow has seemed to us to define both capitalism and schizophrenia, but not in the same way. They are not all the same thing. Depending on whether the decodings are caught up in an axiomatic or not, on whether one remains at the level of large aggregates functioning statistically, or crosses the barrier that separates them from the unbound molecular positions, on whether the flows of desire reach this absolute limit or are content to displace a relative imminent limit that will reconstitute itself further along, on whether controlling re-territorializations are added to the processes of de-territorialization, and on whether money burns or bursts into flames. Let's start with these concepts of absolute and relative limits, because this is one that I think is worth going over. Uh, I'm going to say things and then you guys laugh at me as we do. Uh, the schizophrenic and schizophrenia has the absolute limits because they exist in a place where effectively signs are meaningless and meaning is gone. There's no horizon there. They're always sort of skating around doing whatever they want. Whereas the relative limit of capital always requires axiomatization. Therefore, it's always inside of that absolute limit of schizophrenia, even though it may feel like a limit, it is ultimately relative. That is my stupid thing of the day. Thank you, Empty Set. <laughs> I, th I think that's pretty, like, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I think I, think I would have talked about how the schizophrenic, you know, operates in the sort of desiring production, right? The sort of break flows that the schizophrenic operates within doesn't have to have this axiom, this sort of thing that's posited as true, right? This sort of limit like capital does where, or like capitalism does where capitalism has capital. That's this limit that's, you know, inside of it that it can't overcome. 
and I specifically the the part I like the the phrasing is when they talk about the the language used the language of all of these bankers all of this is schizophrenic perfectly but it functions statistically within the flattening axiomatic of connections that put it in service of capitalism and that phrasing again when we talk about kind of what they've been saying up to this point is uh medium is the message let's just pull that straight out and apply it here that the the way things are said or the form and the pipes that they have to take this language the language itself is schizophrenic completely but the pathways they have to take and how they have to connect to stuff always has to be done in this very particular way that capital requires it's always shaping everything um the I, I I had a rant a few days ago. My son is really into the trolls movies and TV show. Uh, and yes, you should feel terrible because it's awful. But the first one's not so bad. It's about a bunch of trolls who sing pop music and it's cute and stupid. The second one, Trolls World Tour, is a fascinating, I think, actual uh, unintentionally explanation of how this functions and how capital functions in a language level. Uh, the story goes that uh, the pop trolls, who are our heroes, who sing pop music, Justin Timberlake's one of the leaders, and the queen is named Poppy. Uh, and I don't think it's crazy for me to say pop is the capitalism of music. Uh, uh, but uh, they learned that they are not the only trolls, that there are trolls of every type of music out there, lots of them. Um, I know pop had a specific hi history. We don't care right now, Alyosha, not for this discussion. Um, so they, they learn there's rock and roll trolls. There are hard rock trolls. There are classical music, country music, hip hop, funk, you name it. There's trolls that sing this stuff. Uh, and the hard rock trolls have decided that they are going to, through a lot of very Nazi fascist imagery, literally force everyone to sing only rock and roll. And they go around and everyone, they basically commit genocide. I don't know how else to describe it. It's a really fucked up movie. Um, and uh, they basically wipe out these cultures and force them to take on the colors and style and music of rock. And the pop culture, the pop trolls go out to convince them otherwise. And when they show up, there's this big battle where everyone sings rock music, but it ends with the pop music trolls uh, saying that everyone can sing what they want. And it ends with this long song where there's country and classical and hip-hop and funk. And it ends on a nice note where everyone can sing what they want. The problem is, and I didn't notice it the first fucking time, is we're talking actually at this point about uh, how the way the shape of music is changed. Everyone does sing pop at the end, but you don't notice it because everyone sings a pop version of country. They sing a pop version of hip hop. They sing a pop version of classical music. They sing a pop music, pop version of rock and roll even. And the song is long and it's 100% pop music, but I didn't even notice it the first time. This is to me, the axiomatic of capital and how it works inside of whatever it can take, exotic or inside, whatever it is, we don't give a shit. In order to make it work, you get to keep your music as long as it sounds like ours. That's the relative limit. It's pop music exists. It goes out. Oh my God, there's all these other musics. Don't worry, everything can be made pop. Soon you'll be just like us. And the music's the, the movie's fucking horrifying because of that. But to me, that seems like a perfect allegory for what they're talking about here. That you can 
you can say whatever you want. You've got the schizo, the schizos to them. The schizos would be all of these other types of music that make no sense inside of the way their music works. But their music by nature is invasive. Their music by nature deterritorializes all these other trolls, re-territorializes them as this large setup, and everything pop kind of has they have their own flavor, but now they're part of it. And it's insidiously committing genocide, just like the rock trolls, except they're doing it in a nice, friendly way. It's a really fucking. I'm gonna make a. I'm gonna make a video about it, because it's one of the most interesting ways I think to explain how the the axiomatics of capital work, at least in anti Oedipus. Just a thought. And I know Alyosha is gonna be so fucking mad about everything I've said about pop music here. I love it. But sorry to rant, but that feels like what a lot of what they're saying here. And I kept having flashbacks to that when they talk about this axiomatic and capital, no matter what, everything has to fit it. Everything has to go back to it. It has to set up the, the these things, overcode and decode and all that. That's great. But ultimately, it is in the service of capital. It's always in that shape. I'm going to stop talking for a second because now I've rambled too long. So one one thing that's worth uh, kind of remembering is what you know, axioms are the basis of formal system. And so once you establish the axioms, then you go around uh, trying to prove theorems and so forth within the kind of within these formal systems. But the interesting thing about the axioms is that they have these uh, 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 undefined elements that are not defined in the in in the axioms themselves and and so like in geometry they also have like definitions and uh, you know other 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 preliminary uh things that need to be defined prior to the axioms being set up but 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 i i think the interesting thing is that the axioms will always use terms that are undefined and so within the system, there's these these undefined terms roaming around, um, uh, being defined by the way that the the theorems are proved and so forth. The example is point and line and surface geometry. Pick up on that. Um, I wonder. So what's what 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 are there going to be those external elements in the case of capital? You know, because I think, Kent, you're saying an axiomatic system has these things that stand outside and that are kind of, they can be defined within the system. They're just, um, you know, they're presupposed. Um, um, and um, seems maybe in, in the case of capital, what that would be is like, that's the capitalist class. You know, that's the, like the owners of capital, you know, the owners of property. Uh, oh, as a counterpoint, as a counterpoint, maybe it's the schizophrenics that they're the the necessity is that we always have these people who are doing anti-production. They're doing these things that are not in service of capital, because without that, capital wouldn't be able to continually expand towards this infinite horizon that's always relative, uh, and they don't have no new things they can take over. It's it's only through this non-productive thing. Um, oh, why am I jumping ahead? God damn it! Well, we we are about to talk about class. I'm pretty sure there's more in the like coming pages where they talk about how class fits into this. 
Well, so uh, this I will actually toss uh, out to everyone because uh, I think we've got. Yeah, we are about at the halfway mark. Um, and so I'm actually going to uh, stop us here, put a pin in it. That gives us nice, solid two hours. And I think we should discuss this before we we'll move on. I think we'll do another talk maybe tomorrow and continue this like we did for the last one. But Al Dreams, why don't you go ahead and ask your question and let's debate that. That sounds uh, I would like to say one thing to uh, Al Dreams' point before that. I would, wouldn't say that an axiomatic has uh, necessarily to be viewed as something that stands outside. Maybe something that is at the core of, of something way... Uh, deeper embedded that this structure can even uh, dig it out in, in itself, like the critique of uh, Derrida, uh, um, his critique on, on structuralism, that everything uh, is defined by its uh, place in this structure, but the structure itself can't see its structure and, and define it. Uh, it's like a, a blind spot to it, and you have to create uh, then other uh, structures to view the former structure right um yeah i guess i'm just trying to figure out um what i was thinking about that and i guess it seems like um i mean thinking of it in marxist terms maybe uh seems like the schizophrenic like the army of the schizophrenics that are just spewed out by the system or generated by the system that will be the proletariat maybe in a, in, a, in a kind of parallel. And then uh, what I was wondering is, okay, why does capitalism only can only provide a relative deterritorialization? What's the relativity there? And it seems like what makes it relative is the capital owner, you know, uh, because they always, I mean, that's the thing about capital, right? It always takes exception. Um, so, mm, you know, you look at American society, you have basically welfare for uh, corporations. You know, you're supposed to have a free market, but, um, you know, it's it, there's a point at which it breaks down. There's a limit to it, right? And uh, something else I was thinking, I was um, looking at uh, uh, the book, uh, I think it's called Capital by Thomas Piketty. Uh, I think it's Thomas, a uh, recent book. Yeah, it, and basically, it is, yeah. yes. Right. Yeah. And basically the point it makes is, you know, capital is, is becoming um, basically aristocratic. Like all these fortunes are getting passed down the generations. And, you know, most capital now is inherited capital. And that to me is like, um, you know, here's how we can bring, our, you know, I can bring my own capital out of this flow and I can, you know, uh, reserve a kind of privilege for myself. And I wonder if maybe that's kind of what they're getting at with this relativity. Um, uh, you know, the point that that point. Yeah, it's a good point because they say uh, it's relative because it's not pure deterioral deterritorialization, but it has some uh, ordering aspect of reterritorialization built within it. So there are always these these uh, uh, structures or these ordering principles in capitalism like uh yeah uh you can simply say the the capitalists that uh decode everything around them but they uh accumulate uh that what they get uh, that what they get out of it and uh 
build something, their own structure and, and uh, uh, their wealth with it. So it's not a, a, a pure flow of, of uh, deterritorialization. Well, they also talk, though, about, uh, and it's in the previous section we went over a couple of weeks ago, about how capital changes and that it's not simply about monetary exchange and that it represents essentially flows in the finance system. Uh, and we talked about this, like that even the very wealthy now, it's not so much that they have this uh, Scrooge McDuck vault, but instead that they are more a sieve that flows of capital are pass basically passing through. They're a giant sieve with a shitload of it, and they're all doing fine. I'm not saying they're not absurdly wealthy, but that, you know, in the times of, say, uh, uh, 1900s, when you were talking about, you know, the monopolistic practices and the way Rockefeller literally had a shitload of money, and he had just had it sitting in a bank, and it, and he had a bed at home, and he had gold bars and all that. It's, it's changed how capital works over the last hundred years in that way. And, and Piketty goes into that actually in Capital about how the, the shift has gone from being this very representational gold standard thing to being a set of flows, basically. Uh, he doesn't phrase it like that, but I don't think it would be a big step to talk about how he goes into how later stage capitalism is working. I guess we should talk about whether we are continuing reading tomorrow or if we have a review. Yes, I will take care of asking that question right now. Paul, read tomorrow more. Uh, if you vote thumbs up, uh, it means we will read the rest of the chapter tomorrow. If you vote thumbs down, it means we'll do a review tomorrow. I already know how this is going to go because it's how it's gone every fucking time. <laughs> yeah. You people. Uh I will do my best to set this up at the same time tomorrow. Be watching uh, for this because uh, I may be able to move us to 10 a.m. Uh, I have uh, random uh, work shit that is uh, always in the way of pretty much all of these things, but I will see what I can do. Uh, it'll probably be uh, 11 or noon. Uh, so uh, keep an eye on it. We will continue our reading tomorrow from this section as we are about to get into actually Al Dreams if you want to join us tomorrow for sure because we are about to get into how class works in their view in a modern capitalist society and I'm uh, we're starting to get into the things where it's like here's where they diverge greatly in their modern critiques so it'll be great. Um, but thank all of you for joining. I look forward to tomorrow and uh, uh, let's keep going.